I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Speaking of Mozart, man and music, with the modern biographer of the little prodigy from 18th century Austria, and with a master performer of his keyboard inventions. Brace yourself for these Mozart professionals. You could feel you're listening to old basketball stars talking Michael Jordan leaps and Larry Bird threes. In the Mozart case, it was said, it is still said, there was literally nothing in music he couldn't do better than anybody else. String quartets like the best conversations, cinemascopic piano concertos, farcical operas with real psychological depth, and then he could hold his audience all night improvising at the keyboard. Impossible, as they say, but it happened. And we're summoning the magic of it at my living room piano in Boston. Jan Swafford has documented the story in 700 pages titled Mozart, The Reign of Love. And Robert Levin, who has recorded a vast swath of the keyboard music with Mozartian felicity, seems to have it all at his fingertips. Our conversation begins around the child prodigy and what Mozart's father and teacher called the miracle of Salzburg, January 24th, 1764. Leopold is starting to train his daughter. Yeah. And he assembles a music book of pieces that she can learn. Wolfgang hears her working on these pieces. And this little kid, not quite five years old, says, I want to play this piece. And Leopold, who was a very experienced music teacher, said, well, sit down, try it. And in the next half hour, as Leopold wrote on the page where the music was, though Wolfgang couldn't read the music yet, he learned this piece by heart in 30 minutes. Bob Levin, give us a sense of this preschool music. What's going on in this non-roll music book are mostly minuets, simple little pieces that give an inkling of the style. And Mozart hears these pieces being played by his sister, and he starts to invent them on his own. His father, amazed, starts to write them down into the music book, and that's why we have them. But the first one he wrote, I can certainly play for you. Let's hear it. So imagine this tiny kid with his legs dangling in the air off the uh, piano stool, putting this music together, which if you just heard it, you would not realize that it was written by a father. It's a, it's a little bit odd because it starts in triple meter. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one. So suddenly he gets bored or something and he switches from triple meter to duple meter. And this is a minuet. It's not supposed to be in duple meter. (laughs) Now, Lepo could have said, "Uh, son, that's very nice, but you've got to stay in three beats. That's not the way Leopold worked. He was a brilliant teacher. He followed the leads that his children gave them. At the same time, you you write, Jan Swarford, that he's playing the violin without knowing how. Yeah, that was a little later. (laughs) He'd been fooling around with a small violin, and they were playing trios. And he said he wanted to play second violin. And his father said, look, you can play along, but we don't want to hear you. And then they suddenly realized he was playing the part. And Leopold was playing first violin with tears pouring down his face. He couldn't believe it. Who could? Bob Levin, what's it like to improvise a minuet? The form of a minuet is very simple. You have two halves, and each half is repeated, and it's in triple time, and so on and so on. I mean, Mozart starts to write his minuets in his fifth year, and we have... (laughs) 
which is repeated and then And you can see very clearly how the second part is based on the first. Mozart later on created a musical dice game in which you could create infinite numbers of minuets by rolling dice and then first bar, <laughs> snake eyes, you write this down, and then the next bar, seven, so you write that down. And no matter what you do, they're combinatorial and they will work. If you want to know how to, yeah, I mean, I can improvise a minuet for you. Yeah. Uh, For instance, as a first half, it's a simple kind of paradigm. And Mozart had this amazing ability to glom on music, not only technically, but the language of a given genre. He writes his father and he says, you know that, of course, I can play in any style whatsoever. <laughs> and as a child, when they were traveling around Europe, he would blow into town, the family would blow into town. He would listen to the local composers and start imitating them. And in general, to their discomfiture, improved on what they had written. <laughs> yeah. He's built in London at age nine, like this, the greatest prodigy that Europe, or even that human nature, has to boast of. The little German boy, Wolfgang Mozart, a critic said he is an instrument at the command of music. Something almost unreal. And of course, then you have this amazing document, Danes Barrington's report to the Royal Physical Association, talking about his examination of this remarkable boy. And one of the things he asked him to do was to improvise two arias, one of them a song of love and the other a song of rage. And when he had to sing the song of love, he had this sort of beatific look, red cheeks on his face as he sang of love. When it was time for him, however, to do the song of rage, he completely lost control of himself, pounded the keyboard with his fists, rising in his chair. And the fact that Mozart, simply at the suggestion of a character, could become completely immersed in that emotion is astonishing. And I think he was eight years old at that time. Yeah. Play, play anything you like out of that eight-year-old Mozart, Robert. Well, we have this concerto movement that's in the Nanro music book. And later on, it's just crazy. And he was not only writing, but playing this at AJ. And here is Leopold writing this down. He's not writing this down to train his son or to train his daughter because it's too awkward. The only reason he could be writing it down was because his son had composed it. Stick with improvising. Later in his life, Mozart wrote to his father that he'd just written a magnificent sonata in A major and improvised it, which sounds impossible. Those are complicated rules of that form. How did he do it? And what in the world... Well, let's say like? right at the outset how astonishing this has to be. Why is it astonishing? Because typically what you would improvise would be a fantasy in which you could move in any direction, change keys, introduce new material, you could do whatever you wanted. For example, or you could, can, can we hear that? Yeah, I mean, for instance, Mozart's famous C minor fantasy... <laughs> you have
I mean, just really unimaginable things, peering deep into the recesses of the soul. But of course, you can write a cheerful fantasy too. I mean, if I wanted to do something like that. And so on and so forth. So a fantasy was a quasi-improvisatory piece, and it was often truly improvised. But even when it was written down, it was freeform and should have an impression of improvisation. Exactly. Or you would take a famous opera aria of the time and improvise on it. So, you know... So you, you take Mozart's Se Volbolare, Signor Contino from The Marriage of Figaro and you just fool around with it. But doing a sonata is another matter <laughs> because it say. has an architecture. Eight minutes into the piece, you have to come back to the main tune, which means you've got to remember it. <laughs> you're, you're not just being a short order cook. And so the demands that this makes are, are absolutely phenomenal. And it's beyond what any human being could be expected to do as a musician. So that Mozart says he's actually improvising a sonata in its entirety. Right. Beggar's, you know, credibility. Well, part of his gift was he had a phenomenal memory. You know, that was sort of part of his arsenal. And, you know, to hear somebody else's piece and sit down, he did this at one point and said, oh, I these string quartets of yours, and uh, he started playing them and improving them as he went. This did not go over well. <laughs> it did not go listening. over well at all. The composer in question was, was Cambini in Paris. He had written quartets, and Mozart says, they're rather pretty, and I started to play one of them, but I wasn't sure how it went, and one of my friends said, just, just keep on going, and what you can't remember, just make up. I think he was saying, I don't remember, yeah. in order to explain Probably. why he was improving and Cambini on Cambini was beside himself and said, this is a great mind, but I don't think it pleased him very much. <laughs> in fact, uh, it didn't at all. No. Nah. Make the connections from improviser to performer to composer. To compose and to improvise is to engage in an act of storytelling. And so you have to have a basic character and a personage represented in tones, and things have to happen to that personage. When you are improvising, you can play with anarchy, if you like, because different things can happen, unexpected things or, or rational things. When you compose, of course, you have time to reflect on these things. You can be sitting there with your quill dipped into the inkwell while you think about how things are going to go and you allow them to unfold in your mind, and then when you have a pretty good idea, like a chess player thinking 5, 10, 15 moves ahead, you are then in a position to start writing it down because you now know where it's going to go and what's going to happen and to whom it's going to happen. There's another issue here, and that is when you're writing for somebody you know. So there's a kind of feedback loop that goes on between the person you're writing for and how you're writing and so forth. For example, a piece like the Kegelstadt Trio, which was written for Mozart himself on viola, his friend Anton Stadler on clarinet, and a student, a teenage student of his. Francisca von Jacquin. And this girl was apparently a very good player, so it was a completely a social thing in the middle of a party, but it had to do with Mozart's sense of her 
and Mozart's、mm. sense of his own skills on viola and his sense of Anton Stadler was maybe the greatest clarinet player alive. And it was written for a social situation, and they would be drinking and eating and saying, "Now we're going to hear Wolfgang's new trio," and that was the context. Of chamber music. Yeah, so it、days. was about those three people.、Yeah. It wasn't just a piece for clarinet and for viola and for piano. Coming up, the company Mozart kept with musical figures like Haydn, Beethoven, and the Emperor Joseph II. This is open source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. A great deal of what Mozart played in his own time was called house music, with amateurs and friends, and a feeling closer to that of a rent party than a concert hall. The keyboardist Robert Levin picks up the conversation with the biographer Jan Swafford. His subscription concerts were like variety shows. They were the 18th century version of, say, the Ed Sullivan Show, in, <laughs> in which you would have the first movement of a symphony. And then Mozart would play a piano concerto, and then a singer would sing an aria or two. A violinist might come and play something. Then Mozart would do another piano concerto, and then they had the rest of the symphony. But even within the domain of house music, there were different social levels. For instance, piano trios were considered less noble, if you like, than string quartets,、hmm. and you can see that by the fact that the piano trios and the piano sonatas, which are recreational house music, have three movements: fast, slow, fast. But string quartets like symphonies have four movements with a minuet thrown in for good measure. There's another element to this, which is that this music was mostly played by amateurs. A lot of them were women. You know, it's sometimes said Mozart's sister was not able to perform in public. Well, public performance was not as important as private performance in those days, and she did play a lot in private. A lot of women were very fine pianists. But if you're writing a string quartet, you kind of figure the best player, the amateur, is going to be first violin. You know, you don't know how good the second violin or the viola is going to be. You hope they'll be good enough. But the tradition of string quartet playing is for amateurs. Let's、and、make some music. Music was written that way. I mean, it sounds like jazz. It、oh, sounds、yeah. like uptown in 1941. Well,、yeah. it's a it's a vernacular,、yeah. and people are writing in a language that they know and that they understand, and that the listeners and the practitioners understand that music as well. But amateurs. Could be distinguished from professionals not necessarily because they played less well, but because they were married into the aristocracy or the haute bourgeoisie, and they didn't have to earn their living by playing. They could、mm. play just for the pleasure of it. Such as Teresa von Trautner, who's the dedicatee of the Mozart C minor Fantasy and Sonata. She played very, very well, but she was not a professional. And then on the other hand, you would have a string quartet. Well, let's let Michael Kelly. Describe it. He says, "I went to a séance of string quartet playing." He said, "To be sure, these were not the best players that one could find in Vienna, but as there was not a little science among them, I take the liberty of mentioning who they were. The first violinist was Haydn, the second violinist was Dittersdorf, the violist was Mozart, and the cellist was Van Hal. <laughs> so the four leading composers in Vienna were sitting there." Reading string quartets. Well, I think we would have liked to have heard what that sounded like, even if they dropped a note or two here and there. And more about house music, it was often sight read, especially orchestra music. There's a wonderful picture that's hanging in one of the Mozart museums of a house orchestra, and just imagine it's a room not a whole lot 
bigger than the space we're in now, with a small orchestra sitting at one side. There are about seven string players, one ba- a couple of cellos, a bass player, a teenager sitting at the harpsichord in mm-hmm. the middle, with the bass player leaning over his shoulder, reading off his part. And behind the orchestra are people standing there looking over their shoulders, reading the music. These are mm-hmm. listeners. They're eavesdropping. They're eavesdropping. It does sound analogous to Minton's, say, in the birth of bebop music, so-called, it was competitive. You had to be ready. Yeah. Were you ready to play with Thelonious Monk? Were you? Yeah, it was very competitive. And the, the ability to sight-read was enormously prized in that situation, to be able to play not only the notes but understand the music expressively as you win, and Mozart was celebrated for that. Jan, you've written that part of what he had to overcome as a young composer was the reputation of a miraculous child. Can you play, Bob, the early Mozart that is mature Mozart? Well, certainly by the time he's 17 or 18, he's writing pieces which are part of our repertoire, like like the early piano sonata song. Or, you know, uh, for instance... At 20, he's writing the Ninth Piano Concerto, so-called, which is a miracle. I mean, this is, this is absolutely a masterpiece. He wrote at 17 one of his most famous pieces, Exultate Jubilate, for a castrato friend of his, and he had written both the fantastic A major symphony and also the what we call the little G minor at what, 19, Bob? Yeah. It's the A major symphony. Oh, yeah. The G minor. One of the great pieces of Sturm und Drang atmosphere, which he wrote at age 19. He's writing right now for the emperor, Joseph II. He was very good to Mozart, and he heard Mozart. Joseph was a benevolent despot. He heard Mozart early on before he was emperor. He was famous for saying to Mozart after the premiere of the abduction from the Seraglio, too many notes, Mozart. Well, too many was, notes, yeah. That was the standard line. He has too many ideas. He's too imaginative. And the other thing is that Joseph was not an idiot. He was a very sophisticated musician. He was, a, he was trained as a pianist and played quite he well. He was, and he played cello. He could sight-read opera, singing the parts as he played. But it's interesting to see this criticism that was universal at that time, that Mozart's music was too complicated. And we today, when you ask people about Mozart, they say, oh, there's this wonderful simplicity about him. (laughs) And you wonder, is this about us or is this about him? I'll throw out something that's a little radical. When they say Mozart has too many ideas, I think there's something to that because sometimes there are little throwaway bits in the operas that are so fantastic that you hear other composers sitting there and saying, I have never written anything in my <laughs> life as good as these four bars, and they're nothing to him. They're a throwaway, and that's part of what they're talking about. You Bob, can... does he throw away genius bits in the piano music? Can we hear some of that? The incidental, accidental treasures. Well, there are many passages which reveal what we would call attention deficiency disorder. <laughs> You know, where he gets sort of bored with things and he's constantly changing his mind about stuff. 
I mean, I have in front of me here the B-flat major sonata K333, and, you know, you hear... So you've got about a minute worth of music there, and what's going on when he's going suddenly? Where the devil is that coming from? And then, no, maybe, maybe that. And then he laughs on the other hand, and by the time he gets finished with that, it's time to go off to the races. So he laughs at one moment, he threatens us with another moment, and then suddenly you get to... And oh my God, terrible things are happening. This mm. is this huge adventure and... What are we going to do? And suddenly, ah, everything's all right. You know, it's going to be fine. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come home and say, God, that was a close shave. <laughs> <laughs> Changing the subject a little bit. I think of Vienna for two full centuries, from Haydn to Schoenberg, really. It's the home office of world music. It's where it starts. Mozart at the center. As you say, they had great ears in Vienna. They knew the keys and their emotional connotations. They all played. They played for the emperor. I think it's your line, Bob. Anybody who was anybody in that city in the 1770s knew Mozart, but nobody else. Well, it's also important, I think, from our point of view, we see Vienna as the capital of Austria. Austria, at that point, consisted of northern Italy, Hungary. part of Poland and Hungary and Romania and... It was what, a Yugoslavia and Bohemia, all of this, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so the culture that you found in Vienna was an amalgamation of music from Italy all the way north to Poland. Yeah. The singing teachers from Italy that came and trained the opera singers there, for instance. Mm. This made Vienna really the most cosmopolitan city in the world. And one of the most powerful empires in Europe at that time. But what kept the musicians coming, Beethoven, Brahms from Hamburg, Schubert, Liszt, Mahler, it goes on in an incredible series. It was that settled in 19th century musical culture that had a lot of tradition and money behind it. But also, I think great genius tends to breed great genius. Mm. Why are so many Dutch painters so great? It was because there was a culture of great painting. In Holland, there was a culture of great music. In Vienna, the, the string of people you mentioned kept that alive. What's your Vienna, Bob? My Vienna? I mean, my Vienna is, is Demel and Zacher. <laughs> That's where you go to get great pastry, you know? <laughs> the Zacher tort. You go to the Vienna State Opera, you listen to the Vienna Philharmonic, you live in, in the world of Catholicism, which, of course, is very important for Austrian culture. Well, the first time I was in Vienna, the first day, I was walking down the street and there was a string trio playing Mozart in the street. 
And it just hit me. This is a local kid. <laughs> and believe me, they're aware of He's that. the home team. He's like the Red Sox. <laughs> you know, the thing is, of course, that Mozart, living in this cosmopolitan place, having been brought up as a child, as a wunderkind, going through Europe, listening to French music, listening to English music, listening to German music and Italian music and so on, infusing these together. And that's one of Mozart's secrets putting together the various currents of his time, Italian melody, German counterpoint, German sense of form. Let's remind listeners that Mozart is the only composer who was equally great at opera and instrumental music. He's the only one. It's because his sense of operatic drama and character informed his instrumental music and his control of form and material in mm. instrumental music informed his sense of opera. Because he could write music which was overt and snappy and attractive, when he chose to go into the sinister, his music had a depth and a breadth that was unmatched by other composers. You think about this. It's a Figaro overture, right? And you listen to... I mean, there's, there's something that's absolutely paralyzing about that. It sends chills through your spine. And a moment later, it's... That's why it's not called a tragedy. It's called a joyous drama. You hear this extraordinary kind of expansion of expressive language in Mozart in which all of these things can be coexisting. Here's a point I want to make about Mozart in terms of this tremendous variety in his ability to jump from one idea to another. It's often said that Mozart was a theatrical person, which I think is true, but I think he had the personality of an actor, hmm. which is to throw himself into the moment. And I think that's part of his genius as an opera composer. He was all those people. He was Papageno. He was Sarastro. Mm. He understood women very well. His women are incomparable in the operas. And you say, who was the real Mozart? The real Mozart was this person of infinite personalities. Well, that's, that's a, an extremely gift. important point that you're making, Jan, because one of the differences between Mozart and other operatic composers, it seems to me, is that, say, a composer like Verdi is going to show you very clearly whom you're supposed to like and whom you're not supposed to. If you listen to Don Carlo and you hear the Grand Inquisitor, you know, you say, this is one bad dude, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, nobody likes Alberich. But Mozart allows every character to do anything she or he wishes to gain the empathy of the audience. Mm. He doesn't take sides in the way that so many other opera composers do, and that makes his music dramatically more complex, but also more profound and more human. And I think even Don Giovanni is like that in a way, but it's part of the mystery of Don Giovanni and the elusiveness of Don Giovanni that he's not painted in typically villainous terms. He sings some of the most beautiful music in the opera. Although he doesn't have a, a big solo aria at all in the entire piece. And of course, he doesn't succeed in a single seduction in the entire length of the opera. <laughs> That's one of the famous Can things. Can we hear the sound of Don Giovanni's Ambivalence, or... Well, first of all, you have... Uh... But he also sings the courtship he, songs. He, gets... he 
yep. sings the, the champagne aria, and that's the point. When we know that he's a bad guy, that he's amoral and, and so on, and he, he's had a thousand three women in Spain, but when he raises his champagne glass, we all want to go to the party, every last one <laughs> of us. I would argue, in a way, we're rooting for him in the opera. <laughs> that's my own interpretation of Don Giovanni, that he corrupts everybody around him, including us. <laughs> Have we done justice to the point that all of Mozart's music is dramatic, including the keyboard music. Well, Not particularly but, but the, the keyboard One can music. see people and hear arguments, as well as flirtation and love. Well, as a pianist, he was doing the same thing in the sonatas or the piano chamber music as he was doing in the concertos. Make music into a dramatic vehicle. The issue is that of narrative, of storytelling. Yes, exactly. And of watching what happens. I had a talk once with somebody Bob probably knows about, Christian Bezeidenhout. Yeah, very well. The, the forte pianist. And he Wonderful said, the trouble musician. is, we tend to listen to Mozart with the ears trained by Beethoven, and that's not the best way to listen to Explain Mozart. That. We tend to think of Beethoven sonatas as a kind of very clear narrative arc. That was not exactly Mozart's game. Hmm. It's more like an opera scene in Mozart where characters may be running in and out, things may be changing on a dime. And the idea that a piece is a unified narrative in four movements or three movements, I, I think didn't really exist in Mozart's time. He has his own kind of narrative that is often more ambiguous, often floating between emotions that are shades of feeling rather than mm. Beethoven, who I think Beethoven's more transparent for me expressively than Mozart. Mozart is more Mozart elusive. is, again, more complicated in yeah. some ways. Beethoven uses a smaller number of ideas and works them out so that they become an, a, a messenger of fate. You know, you can ask yourself a question. If you're going to write a piece which is in three movements, what makes the third movement of that piece the third movement of that piece? Yes. Hmm. For instance, one of the most famous Mozart concertos, the D minor, which Beethoven played repeatedly and wrote cadenzas for. When the orchestra is finished, piano plays. We get to the last movement. The orchestra comes in with a paroxysm and finally goes piano. Now I want you to listen for a minute. So that, in fact, the last movement is actually recapitulating in content the music that we heard in the first movement. Mm. How many people are going to recognize that in an audience? Probably one in a thousand. But he did it, which, of course, brings me to something that I think we need to say about Mozart. If he wanted to be the greatest composer and pianist of his age, or maybe of any other age, it would not have been necessary for him to write music of the quality that he wrote. Right. Especially in concertos. That's right. He could have written music that was one-tenth as good and it would still be the best of anything there. But that wasn't enough. He was driven to write music that was so superb, that so transcended anything that anyone was doing, that the only thing that another composer could do would be metaphorically to put a bullet through their head. <laughs> Coming up, what's wrong with the picture of Mozart, the suffering genius? This is open source.
I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. And finally, Robert Levin, the performer, Jan Swafford, the historian, cannot resist the puzzle of a genius life cut short at 36 years and the measures of influence, success, victory, and happiness. Scholars know that Beethoven is founded on Mozart. And I think Beethoven picked up this idea that a piece can be a unified narrative in a very direct way. And also this connection of motifs among the movements is something else he picked up from mm -hmm. Mozart and Haydn. So we can say that Mozart's pieces are unified by recurring motifs uh, musically, but there are vast, subtle, complex stories being told emotionally. And I think Beethoven wanted something more transparent emotionally than that. He was looking backward at Mozart basically to the very day that he died. Well, there's a piano, I think it's a sonata of Beethoven that ends with the beginning of a Mozart piano concerto. That's a Mozart tune that... Yeah. The other thing is, of course, that Beethoven's rhythmic vocabulary was much more restricted. Yes. Mozart talks about il filo, the thread, and he also says it must flow like oil, which may seem unremarkable until you realize that he's not saying it should flow like water. Hmm. It needs a certain viscosity. For instance, here's Haydn doing something at the same time as Mozart. Haydn goes... Mozart writes. The Haydn one is characterized by the silences that interrupt the discourse, and Mozart's is characterized by this extraordinary effortless flow. Which he could do while shifting gears rhythmically, which is very hard to do. Beethoven was after something much more forthright and straightforward. Visceral. I, I, visceral. And I, I, there's something Goethe said, I'm going to paraphrase, that the new composers, meaning Beethoven, kind of grab you by the collar and say, here is the emotion, whereas the older composers, by which he meant Mozart, leave you room to find your own responses mm. more. Is that true of the performer, Bob? Absolutely. There's something very worthwhile and welcome for a performer to play Beethoven because of its heroism, its palpable sense of struggle. So I would say that, in a sense, Beethoven is an idealist and Mozart is a realist. <laughs> I like that. Jan, you write in the book that all the myths about Mozart are wrong. The suffering romantic, the revolutionary modern a la Beethoven, the tragic figure, the frustrated genius... Surprise, surprise, you say the pauper's he was grave. a happy man. <laughs> I think he was basically a happy man. He was doing what he wanted. Uh, when he finished a piece, if it didn't go over that well, he just went on to the next one. He was a pro. The cult of genius in the romantic 19th century was founded as much as anything on Beethoven. Mm -hmm. So the suffering genius writing for posterity became the model. That's not who Mozart was. But they shoved Mozart into that... Thing like the pauper's grave. Well, they, he was buried the way everybody else was buried in Vienna. had to do with the law. Well, that was promulgated by Joseph II. Yes. 
he was not poor. He was a freelancer. Freelancers tend to have money troubles, and he meanwhile spent a lot of money. He was a dandy. He had very nice apartments with a lot of furniture. He gambled, yes, but in those days, if you played card games with a family, there was money on the line. <laughs> and he was a billiards player, and he probably thought he was a lot better than he was, so he probably lost money playing billiards. In terms of his success, he was not the most popular opera composer around, but the people who were more popular wrote four to eight times more operas than he did. Salieri wrote, I think, 30 operas. Paisiello wrote, I think, 80 operas. Haydn, his only peer, said, I'm not even Mozart's league. That's what Haydn said, in effect, mm. several times. Mm. Last time somebody asked Haydn to write an opera, he said, are you kidding? <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be compared with Mozart. I'm not going to do it. If you want an opera, hire Mozart. Yeah, that's, a, that's an extraordinary letter. Explain the point that he's an incredibly sociable man, happy or not. He's a bit of a populist and a Democrat in terms of the people he was writing for and playing for. One of the things that distinguishes Mozart and his social attitude is how he writes his ensembles in the operas. Hmm. When you listen to a sextet in an opera by Donizetti, for instance, the top soprano is going to sing the top note of the chord and the second bass is going to sing the bottom note, and they're all going to sing more or less in the same rhythm at the same time. But when Mozart writes a sextet like, for instance, in Figaro or in Don Giovanni, every single person sings to character. The rhythms of the declamation are different. The character of the melody is different. It's a kind of Bachian counterpoint, but in an Italian operatic way. So Mozart is interested in the way the characters interact, and he writes interacting music to contrast them and also to integrate them. But about Mozart and sociable, he had a wide circle of friends from all parts of society. A lot of his friends were Jewish. He, yes. he had friends in the aristocracy. He had friends in the middle class. He wrote Dad once, well, we had a party last night that started at 7 and ended at 9. What? Well, I mean 9 in the morning. <laughs> Uh, he was a he passionate was, dancer. He said some, at one point to his wife, I think dancing is my real talent, which was ridiculous, but that's... <laughs> he went to the theater some, nearly every night sometimes. These days, he would be a moviegoer. Well, he was fascinated by the interrelationship between people, and that, one of the yeah. most extraordinary uh, demonstrations of that is the ballroom scene in the first act of Don Giovanni, mm. where you have three different dances which are being played by three different orchestras simultaneously, each representing a particular class, so that Don Ottavio and Donna Anna dance the minuet, and the peasants dance the German dance, and in the middle is the middle class, which is the contra dance, and Don Giovanni, who is a nobleman, descends one level and pulls Cerlina up one level from the peasants, and they meet and dance the contra dance together. It's a kind of course in 18th century sociology what, what would motivate a composer to be interested in doing something like that, to say nothing of the virtuosity of having three different orchestras playing in different meters at the same time, which is a real tour de force? Mm. Yep. And Mozart was fascinated by human behavior and, and by class in the sense of a lot. His operas really are about what we would call upstairs and downstairs, mm. the conflict of those classes. That's certainly true with Major Figaro. Yeah, it sure is. He wrote that to his father that he was not writing just for the royal court at the front of the stage. He was writing for the balconies, too. Yes. He wrote his father about two concertos of his, and he, in this letter, really defines the classical 
populist aesthetic. He said, these concertos are neither too complex nor too simple. They are straightforward without being banal. The connoisseurs will understand the subtleties, and the people who are not connoisseurs will enjoy it without knowing why. And that, mm. that is, in a nutshell, the classical idea that you're writing for everybody. There's something for everybody. If you want to listen to the operas and say, here are some marvelous tunes and some good jokes, he's perfectly happy to take your money <laughs> and uh, leave it at that. If you want to look below the surface, there's a great deal there. Well, it's a, it's a statement really for the ages. And I think it, it remains something that ought to be an ideal for present-day performers. Bob Levin, I want your response to Jan's general estimate of the man, the happy man, maybe. Dead at 35, almost automatically, a modern thinks the connection with Charlie Parker, this doomed genius, a, a horrific young death. Put it all together, the fights with his father, money, his wife, the children. What kind of man in the end? How do you read it from... The keyboard notes. There is every reason to believe that Mozart was, in general, a very happy person. When he's on a roll in 1785, when having just written the D minor concerto, he writes the C major concerto, the one that these days tends to be called the Elvira Madigan concerto. I want to hear that. Of course, that's... A... Which, by the way, has some of the most extraordinary weird sounds anywhere where you hear... I mean, it, the idea that this is written by Mozart in 1785 is, is, is pretty amazing. But when you listen to him go... this. I mean, it's very, very close to, to jazz, isn't it? <laughs> Playing. He's at the top of his game, and he knows that no one's ever written music like this before. He knows it. He knows that he hasn't ever written music like this before. Mm. And there is a kind of ecstasy you know, the old myth says that he died because he was took on too much and he was broke and he needed the money and on and on. A, he took on everything good that he got. He didn't say no very often, especially if there was good money involved. And B, he always figured that no matter how much he took on, he could get it done because he always had. It's just that finally he wasn't able. He didn't work himself to death because he was desperate or needed the money, but because he loved doing it so much. He loved composing he loved he loved it enough to ride himself to death mm. and he knew he knew what he what he was doing when you listen to Zarastro singing in diesen heiligen hallen you listen to it you think if god could speak to us in an opera that's what he would sound like <laughs> you know and i mean there's there's something about it which is wise and profound and expressed in the most absolute simplicity, which is something else that Beethoven learned from Mozart and from Handel. Simple is hard. 
Well, Mozart was intimidated by Bach, but I think he found a spiritual brother in Handel because Handel, like Mozart, was a man of the theater. Yeah. So even when Mozart came to write the Requiem with all the experience he had of Handel, he used elements of Handel and even quoted bits and pieces. But the Requiem is, is a unique piece. It's Handelian at moments, but it's... It's Bachian, too. I mean, in a sense, the Requiem allows the entire 18th century to pass in review. And yet it's a new kind of music because it's a deeply spiritual music that just goes right to the heart. I think that was where Mozart was headed. And it's service music. It's very much music intended for church. What's your favorite instance of that spiritual seriousness in the later Mozart? Well, there is that extraordinary moment at the end of the Confutatis uh, in which mystery and morbidity conclude. This, of course, is the... That piece, and finally, you 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 get to uh, hear. straight to the heart. The Lacrimosa, which of course is the most famous unfinished piece by Mozart because after eight bars it just simply breaks off. Another example is the Ave Verum Corpus, one of the most beautiful pieces, one of the most simple pieces. And especially the ending... And he does that almost entirely with quarter notes and half notes. Mm. Just he had a few months left. Yeah, and I think that was where he was headed with the religious music at the end, that he was going to be writing because he was about to get the biggest job in town as Kapellmeister of the cathedral. Yes, and his predecessor was very, very ill, but he nonetheless managed to survive Mozart by a couple of years. So Mozart never got that job. Yeah. Mm. I'd love you to give us piano music, not to sum it up, not to finish it, but to characterize it, Robert. Well, uh, maybe a little passage from the B-flat sonata, because the B-flat sonata has a finale, which is like Bach's Italian concerto. That is, it's a piano concerto, transcribed for one piano without the orchestra. And so here's a little of that. so on. <laughs> you know, mm. I mean, what you hear is the piano comes in, plays the tune, then the orchestra 
plays the tune too, and then the drama and the story unfolds. And it's a wonderful sense of irony in the whole thing. And in fact, at the end of the piece, there is a cadenza, just as there would be in a piano concerto, where finally... home and the cadenza is over. So it's part orchestra, it's part piano, it's all Wolfgang. <laughs> Both of you, you summoned so much of this miraculous man into this room. What would he play for us to take us out? Well... Robert Levin at the keyboard, Jan Swafford in the archive, in the wing chair. Thank you both. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Jan Swafford is just out with his fourth big musical biography, this one called Mozart, The Reign of Love. Robert Levin is a pianist and composer with a stack of Mozart recordings in stores and online. Our show this week was produced by George Hicks with help from Adam Coleman and Miles Smith. Mary McGrath's music makes us smarter. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of artist-owned, editorially independent podcasts. The big news from Hub & Spoke this week is that they're hiring. If you believe in the power of podcasting to enlighten and entertain, and if you've got experience in the worlds of fundraising and communications for nonprofits, Hub & Spoke would love to talk with you. Get all the details at hubspokeaudio.org slash jobs. Hub & Spoke. Audio Collective.